You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We're a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. Thank you, Edna. Our uh, second scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Hear now the word of our Lord. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was by the sea. And then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came up. He saw him and he fell at Jesus' feet and begged him repeatedly, Little daughter, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. And now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus, and she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I just but touch his clothes... I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately, aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus, he turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? Jesus looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. But he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they all came into the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make such a commotion and weep? This child's not dead. She's merely sleeping. And they laughed at him. And then he put them outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl who got up began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. And at this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this. He told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a lot in this passage. There's a whole lot of very strong, powerful language in this passage. If you are like me, you've probably sat in services listening to preachers preach this passage. And there's probably a couple of phrases that hang out, that stick out for you. Um, Just the phrase, talit dakum. Little girl, get up. 
pretty powerful. To be able to hear Jesus has this ability to speak to people and say to them, get up. I think that many of us have that kind of need in us, whether we're like the hemorrhaging lady or whether we're like the leader of the synagogue or even perhaps the little girl. We need to hear Jesus come to us and say, your faith has made you well. Get up. But I think many of us are too afraid to get up. We're too afraid even to enter the crowd, to come to Jesus and be like the lady and say, if I just, if I just, if I just touch his clothes, if I just touch him, she said, if I just but touch his clothes, she said, I will be made well. So here's what I want to do today. I, I want us to think about the Bible, and that's what we're going to talk about, which is why it's in the middle of the room in this awkward space that you have to move around it. I know someone talked, joked about knocking it over. Someone moved it around. It, it, it looks like it doesn't belong there. But hopefully by the time that we get to the end of the service today, you will realize that it really does. Because today, what we're doing is coming to Jesus with this book. At least I'm imagining that's what I'm doing with you. And saying, Jesus, like, like the leader of the synagogue did with his daughter, this thing is dead. And to be able to hear the powerful words of Jesus speak to us and say, that thing is not dead. Talita kum, little girl, get up. So many words have multiple meanings, and it's not always the case that you have to use them in different contexts in order for both of those meanings or multiple meanings to be present at the same time. And audacity is one of those words. If I use the word audacity to describe this woman, in this, the woman in the story this morning, the woman with the 12 years hemorrhaging, I think most people would agree that that's an appropriate phrase or word. She was audacious. She had audacity. But the question would come, I think, not in whether or not we think the word audacity describes her appropriately, but what we mean by it. Audacity. She was bold, daring, fearless, courageous. She had what we would say grit. Perhaps that's not what we mean at all. Maybe we would say audacity. I imagine many people there on that day in the crowd there with Jesus would have said that she had audacity, that she was defiant, rude, insolent, arrogant, improper, lacking manners. You see how the words work here? I can imagine some people watching her and saying, wow, she had the audacity to come in here where she knew she wasn't welcome and walk through the crowd of people right up to the front and grab him. I wish I had the nerve to do that. Right? You hear that phrase? By the way, nerve is another one of those words that has rich in meaning that can mean multiple things. I can also imagine, though, that there were people there around her and Jesus that were watching him and would say, Wow, she had such audacity to come in here where she knew she wasn't welcome, to walk through the crowd of people right up to the front and grab him. Oh, the nerve of some people, right? Audacity. If we can shortly think for a minute about this story, we can see it's clearly a story of exclusion, which is what we're doing this summer. We're talking about the word inclusion and exclusion and thinking about it. This is a story of exclusion. She had the nerve to overcome it, though. Though the crowd pushed her away, she had the audacity to persist, despite the social taboos, the religious restrictions, 
the public shame that she might face. Even coming up to Jesus, the text tells us that she was trembling. Paul said something in his letters about faith that's fear and trembling. If I can just touch him, she said. And Jesus responded, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. If I were looking, if we were looking for an illustration about what faith looks like from this story, what faith in Jesus looks like from this story, from this morning's passage, I would suggest that faith, when it's truly faith, should also be one of the synonyms for audacity. In other words, Jesus' response to her might as well have just been, your audacity has made you well. I want to submit to you this morning that when we act in faith, some people might say, wow, she had such faith. Faith. I wish she could do that. And others, I wish I could do that. And others might say, oh, the nerve of some people. When we truly act in faith, according to this illustration that we have in this passage from Jesus, it might look a lot like audacity. We have to have and we have to have faith, you know, the kind of audacious faith if we want to help a broken world find healing. And we need to be audacious people if we're going to have conversations about the things that we really need to talk about to get to the place where God calls us to be. But many of us are too afraid we're not audacious enough. And you might even say we lack the faith. Not, I'm not meaning to say that as a form of excluding you. I'm not saying that you don't belong. It just may be hard for us to get to the place where we can experience the dream of God because we don't have the audacity. We're afraid what people might think. Well, far too often our religious communities have used our sacred texts as tools for violent exclusion. Passages have been read out of context to justify treating people as subhuman or inhuman. And passages are still read today in ways that provide language for some people for some of the most extreme forms of hate. Words that come directly out of passages of our sacred text. And then there are those who, despite this, have the audacity to press against faith communities, to press against God and say, if I can just get your attention, maybe I could change your mind about me. I think those are people who are acting with audacity and the kind of audacity that teaches us what faith looks like. If I could just get your attention, if I could just let you hear me for a minute, if you would just pay attention to what I'm saying, maybe I might change your mind. So what are we going to do this morning? What I think we're going to do this morning is, is auda audacious. We're going to have a conversation and we're going to rethink our relationship to that book, the Bible. And if someone were to, ask, uh, were to ask you to tell them what that thing is, what this Bible is, how would you respond? Now, some people think that it's an answer book. You take whatever questions that you have. Everybody remembers those eight balls, right? You could shake it and then turn it around and then the little triangle would come up and would give you an answer. Maybe you can just ask a question and flip through the book and then find, put your finger on the text. Now, I know that some people, I actually know friends of mine in their faith communities who pray that way. I'll just tell you what my mom says. Be careful if you're uh, afraid of hurting yourself, you might turn to the passage about Judas. Right? There are things in here that are, this is a dangerous book. 
So I think that uh, that that book, rather than giving us answers, actually raises more questions than it provides answers. And some people think it's a rule book. Yet, as I mentioned last week, it's filled with examples of faith of people of faith who actually refuse to follow the rules. Some people think that this is an infallible book that it somehow or another fell from heaven straight from the mind of God. But we know that it didn't. Actually, if you read it, you find the stories in themselves describing communities of people who are saying, I'm not really sure what this text says. They're reading each other, having conversations with each other, and actually they disagree with each other. Try, try it for size. Read the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together. Proverbs says, if you do good, good things will happen. And Ecclesiastes says, I have seen good people do good things and bad things happen to them. Or read alongside of the book of Job and see the person who was faithful in the sight of man and God and, and yet ended up losing everything. The Bible is a conversation. It's not one thing with an infallible sense of God's mind, but rather a conversation with stories that describe communities who are wrestling together for generations. I think the Bible is the book of the people. Let me tell you what I mean. For me, I would talk about it like the growth rings in a tree. I find rings in a, uh, the rings in trees fascinating, even mystical. Most of us, I know that some of you are actually quite experts in this, that if you look at the cross rings of a tree, you can count its rings and get a good idea of how old the tree is, right? The tree's age. There's actually a whole study on this about how you can look at the rings of a tree and tell history. Events, years, droughts, environmental changes. Trees have this, this central core which corresponds to the first years of the tree's growth. And then as you expand outward, you get closer and closer to the present until the outermost ring is the most recent year of the tree's growth. Has anybody heard this before, right? Am I? I'm not making this up, right? So you understand, you get the picture, right? The center is the, is the oldest, right? The outer ring is the, is the newest. So each ring tells a story. And those stories work together to help tell a larger story, something of a history of the tree and its environment. Now, I think that image can help us as we think together about what that book is. What is it? How do we use it? How should we use it as a people who have an audacious faith, an inclusive faith? Or rather than observing the rings of the tree to get the story, I want to invert the image for you. I want to ask us to help think about our sacred stories as if they work together like rings of a tree. And I think this can help us to make sense of how our sacred stories work and what this book is for. So we all know that Christianity has a terrible history of using the Bible as a tool for exclusion. Many times throughout history, it's been used to justify very unchrist-like ideas, attitudes, and actions. Sometimes it's been used to foster political movements that resulted in mass violence or destruction. Think of people marching around synagogues, setting them on fire, singing Silent Night, right? 
This book has been used to do horrible damage throughout history. And if we can't claim this book, if, if we're going to claim this book as our book too, then that history has to be in front of us all the time. But ultimately, our goal this morning is to read the Bible repentantly and with integrity, but in a way that allows us to be faithful followers of Jesus. That is, I believe, that the Bible, when rightly understood, can be read with care from a heart tuned towards healing and wholeness, and that it can still help us become the people that are welcoming and inclusive, a faith community, the people that God called us to be. It's as if we're taking this book to Jesus this morning and saying, okay, my daughter is sick, maybe on its last leg, maybe this book is useless for us today. And we're listening to hear Jesus say the words, Talita kum, get up, little girl. We will talk next week about biblical interpretation, and we're not going to do that today. Today, I just want to help us rethink this important question about the Bible. What is it? Where did it come from? What are we supposed to do with it? So, as an illustration, I brought mine. So here's my Bible. I know that many of you don't bring your Bibles to church with you anymore, but I, I have mine. And it's about to fall apart. Actually, the pages come out. <laughs> and if you look, I'll, I'll pass it around here, you'll notice I've marked all in it, right? And have, have notes all over the side. Actually, I even have dates in some of them, right? So I'll remember when I look at a certain passage and a date, and I'll remember something important that happened in my life and how that passage or this book actually helped change my life. Look, I thought about this notion of, I was actually this Bible. I was in Richmond, Virginia, and was taking a class under a rabbi, and he was teaching us uh, to read the Bible and to think about the history of Judaism. And he gave us a, a copy of uh, a page from the Talmud. And he's explaining to us how uh, the texts work in Jewish communities, or at least in these Orthodox Jewish communities where you have these... Uh, Boys, most of them were boys, who would come to yeshivas and they would sit and they would look at this piece of text and they would read just a few words, sometimes six words. And then they would have to debate with each other, sit across the table and argue with each other. And in their arguing, they would be expected to help each other. Like if they, they, maybe they take the positions of two ancient uh, rabbinical scholars and one would argue one side and the other would argue the other one. And it wasn't so much that they were trying to figure out who was right. They were practicing the art of debate, right? Because in their debating, they got a sense that they understood what the text was saying. And I was listening to this rabbi explain how this happens in their yeshivas. And I'm looking at this text and I, I thought in my mind, oh, it's like a tree. In the center here on the Talmud, I, I actually have, if you get the handouts, you can see them. I brought you a copy. There's this, this text, this page in the Talmud. On the inside of it, it has actually the reading from the Talmud, or the Torah. And then all around it are the commentaries, the Mishnah and the Gemara. And there are these different, and then you get the commentaries of rabbis on the outer edge. And then I look down at my Bible and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm looking at all my notes on the outside and it's like 
Oh, the center part is the Torah, and all the commentary are like the rings. And as years go on, and as generations go on, they have conversations with each other until they get to the outer part, and the outer part, see, is what's current. This is our story, like the rings of a tree. You can read the different interpretations, and the point that the rabbi was making was it's not the text that's sacred. It's the conversation. And the fact is you've been invited to participate in this conversation, not because the text matters so much as you matter. And this community that we're gathered together around the text matters. And when we engage with it and care enough about it to let our own opinions and our own lives be a part of that conversation, then maybe this text has the ability to transform our lives. Like rings on a tree. I uh, have my Jewish study Bible here with me because I had to use it in seminary. Uh, believe it or not, in, at Drew, they don't let you take your Old Testament Bible. They don't even let you use the phrase Old Testament. You have to say Hebrew Scriptures, right? Uh, because old sounds like it's not useful. And then they say, you know what? Jewish communities are the ones that should be teaching us how to read these texts. And in the back are all these commentaries, right? And I'm like, ah, oh, commentaries. Like, this is like the outer edge. These are the current current people who are reading and debating and wrestling. And then I pulled myself to one particular thing. And by the way, this pink uh, post-it note is old. I remember it's almost like that's part of my text too because I, I remember the day I put that pink, pink post-it note there. Um, because I read this essay and I thought, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for all my life. It's called... Inter, uh, or sorry, inner biblical interpretation, and it's by this guy named uh, Benjamin Summer, and he's a, a scholar over at Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. And this is what he said: He said that the religion that generated the Bible foreshadows the religions that are generated by the Bible. We are not sure where this book came from, but it came from a group of people just like us who were experiencing life and trying to figure out what to do with it, and in some ways they were not like us at all. Wrestling with the world, maybe in places like Babylon, where their homes have been taken and their temple has been destroyed, treated as oppressed people, and asked if they could use their skills to write and keep records for an empire that has robbed them, and then they start using their own skills to try to record their own history. Right? The religion that generated the Bible is much like the religions that are generated by it. We continue to wrestle with this text just like they wrestled with their own history. And at the end, uh, this is what he said. By reading and revising, explaining and debating, the authors of the Bible as well as those who follow them demonstrate that many different texts, biblical and otherwise, contain the living words of God. The word of God... Is only the Word of God when we read it. And it's only a living Word of God because it comes to life in our lives. Not because it's text, but because we wrestle with it together. And by wrestling with it together, we make sense of the most important questions in the world. Who is God? Who are we? Where did we come from? And we don't have to agree. In fact, actually, it's not in agreeing with the text that matters. It's the fact that we cared enough to engage in the conversation with each other. And we can come up with our own answers and put them on the outer edge because unless we do that, there's no growth, right? It's like a drought. 
Those seasons of drought have rains that are not very thick. But I think we're hungry in the world for people who are willing to engage enough to let those outer rings grow. I think that's where we are in the world today. I want to give you a quick history of the book, but uh, since this is a sermon and not a Sunday school session, um, I'm not going to be able to go through it all. But I, I want to ask you if you, were to, if you were asked, where did this thing come from? What would you say? What's the time frame? How did it work? When did it come about? Well, I'll give you a quick answer. Um, it, in this book, in this book, now this is just my interpretation of history looking at dates and things, but at, uh, about 2,000 years before Christ, so about 4,000 years ago, Jesus is sort of in the center of history. That's when um, actually the alphabets started to be invented. And somewhere about 1,000 years after that, the Hebrew alphabet starts being used. And then the people of Israel, right, are overcome with uh, the Assyrian Empire and starts to be urbanization that people start to learn a little bit. And all of a sudden, this reformer named Josiah, um, he found a text in the temple. And that is actually Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 26. So in the history, right, we have the story in our Bible of Josiah finding this text, this, this sacred Torah scroll, and pulling it out. That's probably the oldest. Right? There are some other texts. There are some other writings and things like that. But there's no Bible. This is about the 6th century BCE. 600 years before Jesus. And then people move to the Assyria. The Babylonians come and take them over. And then they get together. And then somehow or another that book gets added with some others. And they call that Deuteronomy. Deuteronomistic. Uh, the Deuteronomist is the historian, right? But it's not one person. It's a group of people, a school of people, who decided to write their own history. So there you get the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuels and 1st and 2nd Kings. So you get this core piece of text, right, in Deuteronomy. And then in Babylon, a group of people get together, scholars, and decide to collaborate and take all their stories and all their scrolls and all their histories and write one. And that you get Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel. And then afterwards they go back and Ezra and Nehemiah, and then they start saying, well, let's take all the other scrolls. So they start looking and getting all the other things and they put it together, right? And then you get what's known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy then, and all of the other Deuteronomist history, right? But here's the thing. You can look, and I'll invite you to do this, uh, at home, if you look, I, I couldn't give you too much information because it would overwhelm you. But if you look, uh, textual criticism on Wikipedia, you will see this picture of this thing called, known as JPED. D, by the way, is Deuteronomy. And there's four, at least four different sources of scrolls that were used and merged together to get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And if you look at it, it looks like, it looks like the, the rings of a tree. You get Leviticus and all these other different books. And here's what I'm saying is that these books didn't just come out as they were. They were different scrolls that were moved together in debate with each other. That you, that's why when you read books like Genesis, Genesis, you'll see one story and then it repeated. But when it's repeated, it looks different. 
Why? Because they're two different stories. One of them is the story, the other one is the commentary. So in the book itself, right, it's a conversation. It's not just one text. It's a whole group of texts that are together having a conversation with each other. Now, what does that have to do with inclusivity and audacity? I just want you to understand. I think that our role as a congregation is to be like these people who were followers of Jesus, who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, here's this thing that matters to us so very much, but we don't know how to use it. And the reason I put it in the center is because I wanted to remind you that this is this room, right? What we do on Sunday mornings, this is sort of like the rings of a tree. Here we've got the older core, right? That's years and years of debating and discussing and wrestling with the most important questions. And here we are set, uh, sitting around it looking at it. And what I want to suggest to you is if, if Jesus were to say, Talitha kum today, and say, get up, little girl. What that would look like is it would look like us figuring out what it looks like for the word of God to take root in our lives and to live. And we would become that outer layer of growth. Right? Does everybody see the picture that I'm making here? And when we do that, we would realize that what Jesus was doing was not using the Bible to exclude people but inviting them to debate and discuss and wrestle with the most important questions so that we can realize all of us are welcome. So over the next few weeks, when we look at different passages, I want to remind you of that, that I might give you my interpretation, but I'm not telling you that I have the answer. I'm not even telling you that that's the answer. I'm telling you that in that, in our debate and discuss and conversation with each other, we become a part of making this alive. And that's what I think God's called us to do today. In the name of Jesus, amen.